in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart I take refuge in the three jewels, in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart I take refuge in the three jewels, in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Okay, good evening. So uh, tonight we launch into the actual text. And uh, the book has uh, three levels of duplication in the the end of the introduction by the Dalai Lama, there's a little summary of the schools, very short, like a page. And then um, in the introduction by Donald Lopez, there's a, a much more extensive summary of the tenets of the various non-Buddhist and Buddhist schools. And then there's the text by the Compendium Compilation Committee. CCC. And uh, we've gone through most of the introduction by the uh, Dalai Lama, almost all of the introduction by Donna Lopez, and uh, parts of the introductory matter of the CCC's so-called root text. Oh, buzzing, right? Buzzing? <laughs> Sorry. And, um... Last week, we didn't complete Lopez's introduction. Uh, we went through uh, all the schools except the Madhyamaka. And uh, I'm going to make a, a radical change to plants here and pause and not go through that now. But instead, like, revisit his introduction before we go to the various schools. So we'll, we'll revisit his uh, introduction on... Um, Madhyamaka, as well as I think Chittamatra and Sautrantika, when we dive into those schools. And so tonight, I just want to begin at the end of the Dalai Lama's introduction on page seven, called Concluding Points. Cynthia, you let me know when you have identified that section. Oh, and other digital use uh, readers, Morgan. Who else is digital? Neil, Brent. Oh, cool. Barbara. Okay, so page seven, concluding points, end of Dalai Lama's introduction. Good. Scholars compare the four Buddhist schools, philosophical schools, the steps on a staircase, understanding the views of the lower schools, the steps leading to the views of the higher schools, the Vibhashika rejection, for example, of an eternal universal an eternal creator, and so on, paves the way, and so on. What else might be included, and so on? And, and uh, we have a universal creator. The opposite, the nihilism? Nihilism. There's something else that's sort of key in Buddhism. They reject the... Well, it's a little unclear what an eternal universal is. But uh, the self, and it's like a permanent self, right? Atman. Atman. 
and so on, paves the way for accepting the Sautrantika rejection of unique particulars as the reference of words. You know, like the, the way that these are referred to in summary is uh, complicated and um, has like a lot of a lot of uh, different aspects packed into these phrases. Sautrantika rejection of unique particulars as the reference of words. The reference of words, words are conceptual, right? So conceptual, uh, conceptual mind refers to generalities and not to particulars. So words refer to generalities. Words don't refer to unique particulars or individual, what do we call, uh, individually characterized, specifically characterized phenomena. It's, meaning Sautrantika's denial of substantial existence of permanent entities and the application of, of the Sautrantika's presentation of these points is that the Vaibhashikas do accept these, that the Vaibhashika accepts substantial existence of permanent entities and it's Sautrantika's, that is, positing of general characteristics as mental constructs. Uh, in contraposition to the Vaibhashika's presentation of um, uh, general characteristics as unique realities, substantial realities. Um, uh, positing general characteristics, meaning uh, generalities, conceptual phenomena. Similarly, the Sautrantic assertion that cognition of perceived objects are generalized mental constructs whose instantiation may include unique particulars. Wow, that's a complicated way of talking about um, and it's not that clear, but it's talking about the way that the Sautrantika view the difference between direct perception of the senses, which perceive uh, unique individual entities, uh, uh, specifically characterized phenomena, versus the way that the conceptual mind perceives or um, has it as its object general phenomena, generally characterized phenomena, and. Um, and the Sautrantika's rejection of a self of persons paves the way to accepting the Chittamatra view of the selflessness of phenomena. So there's selflessness of persons and phenomena. And the implication here is that the earlier schools by Bhashag and Sautrantikas do not have a thoroughly developed uh, philosophy or set of views or understanding about the selflessness of phenomena. Finally, the Chittamatra rejection of true existence for external objects could pave the way. Interesting how he changes his tone to could pave the way to accepting the Madhyamaka rejection of true existence for even subjective awareness. The implication being that according to this uh, doxographical system, this tenet system, 
the Madhyamaka's view the Chitta Matras as holding subjective awareness as truly existent. Understood like this, the views of the preceding school can become steps leading to the views of the subsequent school. In any case, knowing the numerous philosophical views that exist in the world, especially the essential points of the four Buddhist philosophical schools, can open our intellect and enrich our resources for critical reflection in other domains. In particular, the study of the profound philosophical topics presented in the Buddhist sources, such as the Chittamatra argument for constant dual cognition and its theory of emptiness, and the Madhyamaka understanding of emptiness in terms of dependent origination, can benefit us now in this life, regardless of whether we believe in future lives. It can broaden our perspective, dismantling the mental afflictions that bind us from seeing things in a comprehensive way. Sorry, blind us from seeing things in a comprehensive way that keep us narrowly fixated. It can stop us from planting the seeds of unhappiness for ourselves and others. These are benefits I can attest to from personal experience. In light of these points, I'm happy that today we've published these books, etc, etc, etc. Okay, so now let's jump to the presentation of the Vibhashika system by the uh, Compendium Compilation Committee, which is chapter 11 and resides in what's called part two of the book, The Buddhist School of Tenets. Chapter 11, the Vaibhashika School. Oh, hold on one second. circulated something by uh, by email little summary and I'll show it on screen so just to get get like a little overview of the way the Vibhashika school is presented is we have uh, we have two sources. The main one is science and philosophy in the end, but it's clacks, clacks, classics, and uh, volume three, chapter eleven, how the school of tenets ar arose, how it became a rose, as opposed to another type of flower, and then a general explanation of their assertions and the first one has the texts on which the system depends the definition and divisions and then the second part the general explanation of their assertions first we have the five categories of objects of knowledge which once you you go through them will be familiar i believe to all of you the fundamental uh, aspects or fundamental law 
or principle of cause and effect and the different um, subclassifications of that and then the way consciousness functions as the knowing subject. So we have the objects, subjects, and then the way causation happens. So if we if we go back to a scheme that we've seen a number of times from the Natarta Institute that was put together by Carl Bernhardt. So the basic division of looking at phenomena was in terms of subjects and objects. And we begin with objects of knowledge. And then there's subjects who know those objects. And that's the ontological way of dividing phenomena in terms of their entity. And then there's the, uh, the uh, classification in terms of function, which is cause and effect. Two different ways of classifying phenomena. And then we have a secondary text, a presentation of the different tenant systems by Mipom, the great Mipom Jamyong Namgyal. And uh, he first has this interesting section that's the uh, assertions that are common to the disciples, shravakas, um, that are common to all the uh, shravaka schools. And uh, the assertion of the four truths the assertion of dharmas or components as this translator, uh, Douglas Duckworth, translates the term dharma as ultimate. The dharmas are ultimate phenomena. The assertion that the arhat experiences the, the consummate nirvana, not different from the Buddha's nirvana, the denial of the basic, what he's calling basic consciousness, which is Aliya Vijnana. So these are said to be fundamental assertions of the Hinayana schools. Denial of the Mahayana, denial of the division of the Mahayana path into the ten grounds or bhumis, and then the assertion that the Buddha was a regular guy, a regular Joe. He was an individual until he sat down that fateful night under the Bodhi tree transformed from a sentient being an individual into a Buddha. And then Mipam goes and uh, uh, um, he refutes each of these, which I didn't repeat here, but he presents each and then he refutes them. And then he presents these assertions that are unique to the Vaibhashikas, the five bases of knowledge. Um, he lists some others that we didn't see above. He lists disintegration as extrinsic, meaning that disintegration is not um, an intrinsic property of a phenomena. Disintegration is a separate entity from the phenomena itself. So uh, uh, phenomena have, uh, um, they're not necessarily programmed for obsolescence. They are, there's an external factor that acts upon them, causing their disintegration. The assertion that the three times are substantially established, and we'll encounter this shortly as we dive into um, the Vaibhashikas in this 
compendium committee text, you know, what does this mean that the three times are substantially established? Um, and, and like on the surface, we say, well, that's absurd. The past and the future don't exist. And the way that they present this, I think you'll find that most Westerners actually do hold that the past and the future exist in the way that they hold this term substantially established. Uh, the assertion of an inexpressible self. And uh, even though this is normally limited to one school, the uh, Pudgalavadans, there is a sense that there's a sort of uh, uh, self that is the um, recipient of karma or the, the holder of karmic momentum. The assertion of cognition as not aware of itself or objects. So they do not hold the view of self-awareness. They don't, they, they don't feel that there's the need to present the idea that every moment of awareness of an object has an, an awareness of itself as well. And the assertion of a product property and what it characterizes as distinct. Um, probably better if I leave that to when we get for it, to it, and the assertion of the non-perishing substance. Again, let's uh, wait till we get to those, but very interesting assertions. So he's looking um, from the 20th century or the 19th century Mipom and has the benefit of another 1500 years or so since the Vaibhashika school uh, sort of congealed, let's say, in terms of what their views are. And so he has a, a rather different gloss on their aspects, which is very interesting. Okay, so let's dive into the Vaibhashika school, uh, chapter 11. It doesn't have a page on it, but it turns out by inference, we can determine that it's page numbers 229. We're looking at the page after it and subtracting one. How this school of tenets became a rose after the Buddha displayed the way to pass into nirvana. Just the language displayed the way to pass into nirvana as if it was all just a display. Clearly a, a gloss from the later tradition of the Mahayana, which holds that it was just a display that he never really passed into nirvana. He never really... Um, changed. The Arhats gathered the discourses on the Abhidharma into seven books and finalized them. This school evolved. And so this issue of like the seven books of the Abhidharma turns out to be a rather crucial one for this school. We'll see different viewpoints on that. This school evolved from the compilation of the seven the sacred number of seven books of the Abhidharma and seems to have become widespread upon the compilation of the Abhidharma treatise called the Great Exegesis, the Mahavibhasha, which is this huge compilation of Abhidharma texts, uh, like thousands of pages or something. <coughs> it exists in Chinese translation, but uh, nobody has translated it into any of it into English, which shame. It'd be neat if there was at least somebody who would do like a uh, table of contents of what's in it would be cool. Uh, let's see. 
after the Buddha had passed into Nirvana, his followers, as opposed to displayed the passing, his followers agreed to spread his teachings widely through dividing themselves into 18 individual schools. Sorry. How do you like that as a way of explaining the division into schools? They, it, it's like they did, they divided into schools for the purpose of uh, facilitating the greater dispersion of the Dharma. It's like the bureaucracy of them all being one in the same school would have hindered their ability to spread the Dharma more widely. I, I love that way of uh, presenting it. Among the works in the Tibetan Tenjur, so the Tibetan Tenjur is the collection of texts received from India that uh, consists of texts written by Indian masters not the Buddha. The Buddha's texts attributed to the Buddha are in the Tibetan conjure. So they have two sets of scriptures. The conjure is attributed to the Buddha that has sutras, vinaya, um, a little abhidharma, and lots of tantras. And the tenjur has texts by Nagarjuna and so forth. The earliest and the clearest explanation of this topic appears to be Bhava Viveka's blaze of reasoning, where three different descriptions of how the 18 schools were divided or found because of its great importance. His description will be quoted here at some length. In the first way of dividing the schools, there are two main schools, the Mahasangikas and the Stavira. The Mahasanga is further divided into eight and the Stavira into ten. Now, Despite its great importance, as the authors say, I'm going to skip this entire section because it's like this endless rundown of like lists of schools that really is not that helpful. Uh, the, the one section that I found helpful occurs on the next page. So it's after the second quote, and it says, in the third description, as in the first system, the two main schools are Stavira and Mahasangika. However, this description differs in explaining how other sub-schools divided from these two. The section of the blaze of reasoning that sets forth this third system clearly identifies the main precepts or tenets of each of the 18 schools. And it is quoted here in its entirety. And this was sort of fascinating because it gave all these little unique views of the different schools. However, in my opinion, it should be after, at the end of the chapter after you've gone through like this presentation of the basic views of the school, and then you can look at the nuances. But it's not, so just uh, a few, let's uh, check out a few of them just that for example, let's say. So continuing, uh, or starting off that quote, it says, others say that when, so the top of page 231, when 137 years had passed after the Bhagawan had passed into Nirvana in the city of Pataliputra, kings named Nanda and Mahapadma gathered a group of noble ones who had attained a state of tranquility and would not take birth again, residing in that community where Arhats, etc., etc. So skipping that, um, down to the next... Uh, actually, uh, let's let's continue with that one. Resign the community where arts who had attained analytical knowledge, um, which seems to be different than the state of tranquility. Right? It's it's not clear to me 
what analytical knowledge is and how that differs from tranquility and could not take birth again. Presumably tranquility would not take birth again means there are hearts and have achieved nirvana. Much to the chagrin of James Jones. Um, but uh, there were some arhats are, uh, had attained analytical knowledge, such as the Arya Mahakashipa, who was uh, famous for being the first uh, leader of the Sangha after the Buddha, the Arya Mahaloma, Mat Mahatyaga, Uttara, Revata, or Revata at that time. Sinful Mar, opponent of all is good, put on the robes of a monk and performed various miracles, creating a great schism in the Sangha over five points. So there's this, uh, um, his, uh, this uh, recounting uh, that apparently there was a monk named Mahadeva who put forward five main points of controversy that was used as the uh, pretense, let's say, for the first. Uh, division into schools that happen at the second council. Learned elders named Nag and Stiramati praised the five points. They said that it is the teaching of the Buddha that an arhat, and these these are like the obscurity and the weirdness of these points is uh, immediately evident. That an arhat teaches and gives answers to others. <laughs> it's like yeah so what what about that um does not know what an arhat does not know doesn't you know so they're present for some reason they're presenting these five points in this really cryptic way because because it's and they're doing this because it's a little unclear from the historical record what the actual five points are and later traditions give expanded explanations of it but they're presenting the i think what they're doing is presenting the earliest record of these five points which is really cryptic and they're sharing that wonderful experience with us is of two minds <laughs> investigates and says that caring for oneself is the path <laughs> self-care that's big today right they were way ahead of their time Bizarre. Then the community divided into two schools, Stavir and Mahasangha. Thus, for the next 63 years, the Sangha was divided and remained strife. Then, 200 years after the Buddha, the elder Vatsiputra, Vatsiputra, sorry, collected the teachings. When he collected them, two types of Mahasangha arose the Ekavaya and the Gohulikas. And then this long list of what they are, the primary precepts of the Ekavyavaharika are that the Bhagavan Buddhas are super mundane, okay? The Tathagata does not possess mundane qualities. Hmm. Okay, so they never like sneeze or fart. Okay. No Tathagatas engage in speech, so they never said anything. That sounds like Nagarjuna, doesn't it? The statements of all the Tathagatas are concentrated in essence. Hmm. So that implies that like they have to be explained. Tathagatas do not take on the form in which they abide. That's odd. What does that mean? Like they they abide in the human form, but they don't take it on? It's not, I don't know, they're not trapped by it in some sense. 
when bodhisattvas uh, presumably are in the womb rather they do not go through the stages of the oblong shape the oval shape or the lump-like shape <laughs> i don't know if you remember in the first volume at the end in the ontology section the cosmology section there was a whole section on uh, the embryo and and the stages of the embryo these weird ideas you know their version of what what that whole situation is like but bodhisattvas do not go through these embarrassingly odd shapes at any point um or the lump-like shape becoming an elephant bodhisattvas enter the body of their mother and emerge by themselves by the way thoughts of do, desire do not arise in bodhisattvas they take rebirth in the evil realms through their own wish and bring sentient beings to spiritual maturity the four truths are fully understood with a single wisdom consciousness so uh going back one section the bodhisattvas so when they talk about bodhisattvas they don't have like lots of bodhisattvas like us who have taken bodhisattva vow. when they say bodhisattva they mean like the ones that are going to be the buddhas like shakyamuni when he was a bodhisattva and maitreya so it's like you count them on one hand how many bodhisattvas there are those are the bodhisattvas it's not like anybody else um Let's see, the four truths are understood with a single wisdom consciousness. This refers to like how um, enlightenment happens. Does it happen in a flash on the path of seeing? Or are there 16 moments? Does anybody remember this whole issue of like, there's supposedly like 16 moments of the path of seeing because there's 16 aspects of the Four Noble Truths. And uh, as Cynthia's indicating, one way of explaining it is like putting a needle through 16 pieces of paper or leaves that are tightly uh, bound together and they go through like so quickly as it's, it's as if they go through simultaneously but maybe they go through sequentially anyway these guys hold it it's simultaneous and um all six consciousness have both desire and are free from desire which is sort of interesting is that there's there's consciousnesses that are without desire which is is odd a little bit odd the eye sees forms <laughs> is that surprising <laughs> um even our hearts achieve what is taught by others I can't remember what that is about that but the eye sees forms is like that's the vibhashika school is like it's direct perception the the senses contact their objects directly the sautrantikas had this interface of what they call the aspect but the phrase the eye see forms is meant to express this idea that the senses contact their objects directly um so the implication in this section is that only this one specific Ikavyavaharika school yeah, yeah. Hold that all everybody of else is not. Not, 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 not. not necessarily the, the second part of it. Many of them hold similar views, but not all of them, as you'll so see. So in this maybe, oh, yeah, there's overlap throughout. So it's not, right. they're it's not, not considered unique to this group. Exclusive, yeah. 
Um, <coughs> Arhats do not know this weird phrase, or of two minds they investigate, and they say suffering on the path of abandonment. There's this weird uh, issue of like, when Arhats achieve enlightenment, do they say anything? In the state of meditative equipoise, one is able to speak. So this is, this is, those two are related. So when you're in samadhi, can you speak or not? I think most people would say that you can't speak when you're in samadhi, but um, the impure is abandoned. So uh, impurity exists and it's, uh, it's surpassed or abandoned. By manifesting restraint, it is said that all fetters are abandoned through renunciation. The Tathagatas do not possess worldly correct view. So they they don't experience what we experience. You know, that's one of the questions that always comes up. Does a Buddha like see what we see and hear what, or think what we think? No, because the mind has a nature of clear light. How do you like that? One cannot say whether the predispositions are similar to the mind or not. They've got halfway there. They have the mind is clear light, but they don't have fully a, they haven't fully got to the point of viewing the defilements as adventitious. Um, or similar to the mind. The predispositions are one thing and their manifestations are another. Past and future do not exist and stream enters attain the concentrations, the, the absorptions. Stream entry is the first stage of the four stages of uh, liberation in the Shravaka path. There's stream enter, once returner, non-returner, and arhat. So these are the precepts of the Ekavyavaharika. And, the, and this, uh, he goes through this for all these different schools, all these weird little views. And it's sort of mind-boggling. I'm going to skip all of these, however. And... Uh, uh, there's another section that goes through the uh, etymologies of the different schools. Where does the terms come from? Which, again, is not very helpful. And I'm going to go to the conclusion of this section. Um, this section is that we're in is called How This School of Tenets Arose. And at the end of it, which is page 238 of our book, towards the top, there's a the paragraph that starts, turning to Vaibhashika. Cynthia, let me know when you're with us there. Morgan, Barbara, Brent. Turning to Vaibhashikas. Everybody else, page turners, you're, you're all there. Uh, a division found with when the Buddhist schools of tennis are divided into four, the early texts do not clearly identify with any of the 18 schools cited above. So this is an interesting thing where the Mahayana tradition regularly talks about the early schools as being condensed into Vaibhashika and Sautrantika. And Vaibhashika is not found in the 18 famous list of 18 schools. So it's this sort of question mark of like, where does Vaibhashika come from? It's clearly a later 
evolution of some one or maybe more of those 18 schools, but it's a little unclear what can, which one of those 18 it connects back to, because all schools have to ultimately connect back to those 18. Um, however, in the text of the Indian scholars of Nalanda, and they use, again, they use that phrase, the Indian scholars of Nalanda, sort of like this general term, this term for the general sort of uh, Mahayana scholarship that analyzed the delineations of the Vaibhashika system. Vaibhashika is identified with Sarvastivada, which is one of the 18s, according to the tradition of the noble Theravada. At the time of King Ashoka, the elder Mogali Putatisa was in charge and composed a text on the Abhidharma called The Points of Controversy, the Katavatu, famous text translated into English, which delineates their position of the Theravada. In that text, the Stavira school specifically refuted its opponents. So the Theravada is an evolution of the Stavira school. And the, its opponents are both Mahasangika and Sarvastivada. So, although the um, um, the Staviras come out of the 18 schools, they consider themselves to be different from both the Mahasangas and the Sarvastivadas. Um, Therefore, regardless of whether all seven books of the Abhidharma of the Sarvastivada school existed prior to the outset of the Common Era. So there's this controversy of when were the seven books of the Abhidharma put together. And there's two different versions, the Theravada version. Um, uh, um, attributes, that's the word, attributes the seven texts to the Buddha. And the other traditions attribute them to the major arhats. Um, it appears that the school itself existed prior to the common era. It appears the Sarvastivada school was the most widespread in India during the early period of Buddhist history. From Pataliputra in central India, this school of tennis began to spread to other places in India and around the second century of the common era, before the common era. It initially spread to the regions of Mathura. The school gradually grew, sorry, grew there due to the efforts of Upagupta, who was one of the patriarchs. Then spreading gradually, it eventually reached the region of Kashmir in the north. Kashmir Vaibhashika would later become known as the main Sarvastivada system. So interestingly, Kashmir, which these days is basically all like Tibetan Buddhists, was the, uh, the main area for the main school of what we would call Theravada these days of the early tradition or Vaibhashikas. Um, in addition, according to what is stated in the travel journal of Chinese monk, Xuanzang of the Tang Dynasty along the Ganges River in northern and central India, there were more than 60,000 Samatiya monks among more than a thousand monasteries. So, uh, 60,000, and Samatiyas were one of the 18 schools, presumably of the Sarvastivada, I think, strain in Northwest India and Central Asia, approximately, among approximately 600 monasteries, there were around 16,000 Sarvastivada monks. So Sarvastivada was all over. Um, in Southern India and Sri Lanka, among approximately 200 monasteries, he, Zhuangzong, mentioned that there were about 20,000 
Stavira amongst the predecessors of the Theravans. According to his travel journal, Kashmir and Gondara, there were around a thousand monks and approximately 20 Mahasangika monasteries. Mahayana monks spread to many regions of India and Afghanistan and Khotan together. There, there seemed to have been around 70,000 Mahayana monks. Some say that Sautrantika also emerged later as an offshoot of Sarvastavada. Again, Sautrantika's origins are not that clear in terms of where they fit in with the 18 schools for whatever that matters. Uh, but it's sort of interesting, this Chinese tra pilgrim traveler, Xuan Zong, um, does like a survey of, uh, what do they call it? The, the population something. Census. Census, there you go, thank you. <laughs> The text on which the system primarily depends. I'm going to skip around here because it's not uh, helpful to go through all of it. But uh, would somebody ask this question? What shastras and treatises are the sources of this school? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Sutras, not shastras. Thank you. What sutras? Among the sutras, it is said that this system is based on the first teachings, the Wheel of Dharma, the Four Truths, such sutras as the Hundred Instructions, Upadesha Shataka, something I've never heard of, the three interwove, interwined, intertwined, interwined, 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 it should be twined, garlands, the Katyana Sutra and the Brahmanet Sutra. The only one that's really famous these days is the Brahmanet Sutra. The treatise it depends on are the seven works of the Abhidharma and the great exegesis Mahavivasha, which summarize their meaning, renowned for having been composed by the Arya Pagupta and others after the Buddha passed the Nirvana. In this system, the seven works in the Abhidharma are accepted as the words of the Buddha. And they assert that the noble Sharipuch and others gathered the statements of the Bhagavan and arranged them into seven works. So uh, they were the, attributed to the Buddha and Sharipuch has just arranged them. Um, Sharipucha and others regarding who arranged the seven works, this text by Asumitra clarifying the meaning. An Indian prince does a little survey and he's giving the current view of things. He says, it is said, thus it is said that the establishment of knowledge, the jnana prastana, was composed by the noble Katyanayana Putra, Katyayana Putra. And I'll stop there, I won't really read all of them, but that's like the main one. And we see later on that the others, can, like in the next paragraph, somebody Bhashik assert that among the seven, the treatise establishment of knowledge is primary and the other six are like branches around it. So we'll leave it at that. And, um, <coughs> Skipping the next paragraph that starts with modern scholars, going to the next paragraph, which is on the bottom of 240. For us page turners, turning to the many Abhidharma topics and the great exegesis, the Mahavibhasha, the positions of the masters of the path are set forth, especially those of the four famous Harvastavada masters, Dharmatrata, Goshika, Vasumitra, and Buddhadeva. Many difficult points are analyzed and settled with an emphasis on the Sarvastavada position. Furthermore, in that text, what is called the early Abhidharma, the Vasiputriya school following the Abhidharma text of Shariputra is explained and their systems refuted. It also refutes the views of the other, other of the 18 schools of Vibhajyavada and the Mahasangika, two early treatises on Sarvastavada are extant. Still, 
Bhaktis today, Heart of the Abhidharma, Abhidharma Hridaya, by Dharma something or other, with 10 chapters in Ambrosia of the Abhidharma, Dharma Amrita um, by Goshuga with 16. Today, those two ancient texts are not available in any language other than Chinese, which is an odd thing to say. I guess they mean no other like uh, ancient language, like Pali or Sanskrit or Tibetan. Uh, but there are translations of these two texts from Chinese into English. If you're interested, they can be found and obtained, and I have copies of them. And it's sort of interesting to look at what these other Abhidharma texts have. But around the fourth century, continuing the next paragraph, Asubandhu composed the famous treasury of Abhidharma Kosha and its commentary. Um, this became the most famous Sarvastivada text in the great Tibetan monasteries among the Abhidharma texts of the Sarvastivada system. It alone is held to be primary. The tradition of its study spread widely, <clears throat> as is clear from the existence of so many commentaries, general explanations, and analyses of this text by Tibetan scholars. But that only says that it uh, spread widely in Tibet, but it also spread in China. Among the noble Theravada in general, there are seven famous treatises on Abhidharma. One analyzes the collection called Abhidharma Pitaka that comprises these seven famous treatises. Among the, uh, their scriptures, which today are in the Pali language, their way of enumerating the seven is different from that of Sarvastivada. According to the Theravada, the seven on the Abhidharma include blah, 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 blah. Um, And uh, they don't really make this that clear, but as you go down this list of them, they're enumerating these texts, it says, and the others are accepted as the word of the Buddha. So, uh, in one system, Shariputra put them together based on the words of the Buddha, and the others in this system, it's the word of the Buddha. Anyway, today, the most famous and widespread treatises on Abhidharma, like if you go to to Google or a Buddhist bookstore and look for Abhidharma, you find Anuruddha's compilation of Abhidharma, Abhidhamata Sangha, which is excellent compilation on Abhidharma, translated uh, by very helpful by Bhikkhu Bodhi with a commentary, and then Buddha Ghosh's famous path of purification of the Sudhimaga. Now diving into Vaibhashika Prabhupada, as a Buddhist school of tenets, foundational tenets are the assertion that an aspect of sense objects and reflexive awareness do not exist. Now, it's sort of bad form to define something by saying what it's not, but I guess that seems to be acceptable in this world. And the assertion that external objects are truly established. Okay, so that's helpful. Um, they are called Vibhashika because they hold that the three times are substances or because they set forth their tenets in accordance with the great exegesis. I'm going to skip the rest of this paragraph and uh, next one. Their position that the three times are instances of substances means that they hold that the three times are the instances of the substance on which they are posited as substantially established things. Probably one of the most unhelpful sentences ever written. 
that, for example, a sprout exists in the three times. The sprout itself is the generality, and the three times in which it, it exists are asserted to be instances of the sprout. So this idea that things exist throughout the three times is a difficult one. And uh, they, in my humble opinion, have a difficult time explaining it. And uh, they're going to approach it a few times. So we'll see if it makes any sense by like the fifth or sixth time. Uh, let's see, in accordance with the assertion um, that Sarvastava and Vaibhashika are the same as the text something, explains not only do they assert that the three times are truly established, but they have to assert that the three unconditional phenomena space, analytical cessations, and non-analytical ones are truly established. Um, so these are not very helpful. So let's dive into skipping to the next section, general explanation of assertions. The main points of this tenant system are that are as they are delineating the seven treatises. <coughs> it's comprehensive and unique assertions, etc., are found in blah and so on and so forth. Um, some of these assertions have uh, of the foundations of its sentence have already been explained in other volumes of this series, which we've gone through. One can understand a complete presentation of the Bashiga tenets setting forth everything fully would require a huge volume. For the sake of convenience in this volume, we've uh, the points that have been explained elsewhere will be summarized, and what has built what has not been explained will be set forth a little more extensively and will follow this approach in explaining the other Buddhist schools of tenets as well. And the Vibhashika, all objects of knowledge are included and delineated under five categories, the foundation of appearing forms, rupa, the foundation of main minds or primary mind, chitta, the foundations of accompanying mental factors, chaita, uh, mental factors. The foundation of non-associated compositional factors, viprayukta samskaras, and the foundation of the unconditioned, the asamskrita. So samskrita is compounded or conditioned, and asamskrita is unconditioned. They assert that all five categories of objects of knowledge are able to perform a function, I, therefore they are things, and are substantially established things. Thus, regarding condition phenomena, there are three. Form associated compositional factors and non-associated compositional factors. Associated compositional factors um, So they went from five categories down. They, then they said uh, regarding conditioned phenomena. Of the five, how many are conditioned? Four. <laughs> Everything except the unconditioned are all conditioned of, of the five, right? So thus regarding conditioned phenomena, which are four of the five, there are three form associated compositional factors and non-associated compositional factors. So they've somehow turned four into three. Associated compositional factors have two divisions, mind and mental factors. 
So they combine those two into what they're calling associated compositional factors. Non-associated compositional factors are called that because they're not associated with mind and mental factors. And associated mental factors are associated with mind and mental factors, and therefore they are men mental factors. Uh, sort of silly, but uh, regarding unconditioned phenomena, the Kashmiris assert that there are three space, analytical cessations, and non-analytical cessations, and we struggled through these before in the past when we went through those sections in prior volumes. Analytical cessations are cessations achieved through uh, analysis of the uh, impermanent, selfless nature of all phenomena. And non-analytical cessations are a little more vague, but seem to range from the exhaustion of productive causes to uh, cessations achieved um, through meditative states that do not have analysis. But they're a little bit unclear. The four characteristics of conditioned phenomena being production, abiding agent, and disintegration are not asserted to be that which arises and so forth. Clunky way of saying that dharmas such as form, the different types of form, the different types of mind, are different than the four characteristics abiding, production, abiding, aging, and disintegration, that those are separate phenomena from form and mind. They're not associated, asserted to be that which arises, ages, abides, and disintegrates. They are asserted to be what causes the production and so forth of this and that conditioned phenomena. These characteristics are asserted to be what causes the production, the abiding, the aging, and the disintegration of conditioned phenomena. So you have conditioned phenomena are like these static ultimate entities, and then these forces of production, abiding, aging, and disintegration act upon these um, sort of static ultimate entities. So it's their crude way of conceptualizing what reality is. Uh, for things that are instances of form and so forth, the four characteristics exist simultaneously, but are asserted to operate sequentially. That's a handy way of describing it. So those four, four forces, um, they exist at the same time, but they, they uh, act in a sequential sequence. So they're all standing around watching matter, let's say, and they take turns. Okay, who's first? Production, do your thing. Abiding, do your thing. First, something's produced, then it abides, then it ages, then it ceases. Although in the Vaibhashika system, it is asserted that conditioned phenomena are necessarily momentary. They accept that there is a state of abiding between production and disintegration. They probably should have said between production and aging but certainly between production and disintegration, that is different from them. Them being, I think, production and disintegration. Um, so, you know, the fundamental law that all phenomena are momentary, 
um, how do you reconcile that with this idea that uh, they seem to appear for a moment and they they're real so they so they have to have a moment of abiding but like not in a non impermanent way so it's a slippery slope that they're you know that one anyone would try to describe in terms of abiding with the fundamental buddhist law that everything is impermanent and yet how do you describe what there is and, and what appears and so forth and what functions um let's see the way they posit momentariness is quite coarse compared to the South Chantikas and above, i.e. Chetamacha and Madhyamakya. Regarding their assertion of permanence, they assert that something that is permanent retains at a later time everything that it has at, at an earlier time. And that's a very uh, helpful way of explaining it. They retain everything. It's like uh, It's not like some part of it changed and some part didn't. It's like it's all still there at some later time, presumably like the next moment, but <laughs> I guess they leave the door open. It could be like the next day or 10 years or whatever. Um, so Trungchuk and above do not assert the meaning of permanence in that way. So what is, you know, what is impermanence and what is permanence on a granular like elemental molecular level what does it mean how do these how do phenomena if phenomena are produced by causes that means they don't exist and then they exist and and do they go through phases do they you know it, it's not easy to to explain you know arising abiding and disintegration in addition to their unique way of asserting the six causes the five effects and the four conditions which we did go through in another volume but i don't necessarily expect anyone to remember them they also explain the cause and effect are simultaneous they actually meet which makes sense in a certain way right when a seed is planted in a field the state of the sprout not yet produced is the future sprout so so this is how the sense of the three times as being substantial entities is a useful concept to them they say that uh, the cause in the current in, a, in the the present moment acts upon the future moment of the effect or something like that Let, let's try that again when a seed is planted in the field the state of the sprout not yet produced is the future sprout so that sprout which in the present is not yet sprouted or existent exists in the future as the sprout and the seed is the cause of the future this the present seed is the cause of the future sprout so when so they at say that, that point, isn't that just saying that this future sprout is an idea no it's substantially existent that's their whole thesis is that it's actually substantially because otherwise the cause has no result yeah, so and you're, you're, this, the future sprout exists not just the notion of the future that's the right the future sprout exists sprout rather but when does it exist where in the future but it exists in the future 
you have to expand your mind and like right. so then in give up case, this idea that the future and the past are gone. Right. The future and so the past are present as the past and the future. It's all simultaneous, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Kevin. I just had a really nerdy thought. It's like a cruel accounting. Is anyone- It is, it is. It's definitely it's like, like a cruel, cruel accounting. accounting. That's right. Accounting. It's like there's the present value and the future value. And yes. as, as as soon as you know the present value and the factors of composition involved in that, such as the discount rate and so forth, then right. you know the future value and the future value exists and it's just as real as the present value. <laughs> That's how it works, as crazy as it sounds. But yeah, they, they invented accrual accounting, it's true. Yeah. And the double entry uh, bookkeeping. <laughs> Well, that's really, that's really like a mystical. Kevin, Kevin, what do you make of all this? Uh, sorry, Neil. It seems to ignore the possibility of subsequent events to say that it exists in the future. If the seed were destroyed, then it doesn't exist in the future? No, those are bad debts, you know? <laughs> Does that, I mean, what is it? What does karma mean in this scenario? Because that I think, along what Neil was saying, that would imply if the future already exists, then it can't be influenced by what you're doing now. Right. It means a whole other meaning of future. It it means that you did you do not have omniscience, so you did not know the future correctly. And and by the way, the accounting for bad debt is one of the most beautiful things in the world. Someday you got to. So, Kevin, you you know accounting then. It was the worst time in my life. <laughs> I, as a graduate, I took two accounting courses and I thought they were so inane. I just wanted this keen. Oh my God! It's just it's all convention. Has no clear, clearly a very primitive mind state, primitive belief about reality. Counting is ultimate reality. <laughs> it's above the Madhyamaka school. Is <laughs> the accountants? There's the particularists at the bottom, and then the accountants are at the top. I am an accountant. <laughs> I was, at least. I graduated. Anyway, um, the sprout that has been produced but has not been destroyed is the present sprout. When it is destroyed, that is the past sprout. So the past sprout exists as the sprout that's been destroyed, that no longer exists in the present. Does, does the destroyed past sprout exist in the present before it was destroyed? It did in the past. You can't really say did it exist in before in the present because the present only has the present. If you say before in the present, then that's the but past. I but I thought that we were saying that essentially these have to all coexist simultaneously for them to yeah. all. Exist. Yeah, the past, the present, and the future all exist simultaneously. The past sprout exists as a disintegrated sprout. See, that's the other nuance: is things that can exist as disintegrated phenomena and not yet arisen phenomena even while they are supposedly existing in the present even while so all three of the states coexist at the same time 
right? They, they, they no, they. <laughs> I keep saying they exist in the past and the future. Those are different times. But those it's a it's a funny twist to the way we use concurrently with what we think of as the present, right? Not <laughs> I'm with you basically, but the way you're saying it is not the way you know trips it up because they don't all exist in the present; they exist in the past and the future. I'm saying they all exist. I'm sorry. Okay, I I, I think I made a mistake there, but they all exist simultaneously. There, we're good there. Time zone, so I think you have to, in their own time zone, exactly, in their own realities. But, uh, I mean, it, that's like a phenomenally amazing view of, like, reality. Like, if things are real, then they happened in the past and they have effects now in the future. Sorry, <laughs> in the present. I think I'm in the present. And those will have effects in the future. And if everything's real, then that's like totally real. And uh, I think it's an amazing way to expand your mind of, of like everything in the past is gone. As if like nothing, the past doesn't matter. You know, but everything I mean, in the present people, is due to the past. It is, I mean, if you think about you know, we're thinking from a Western point of view, but let's say you look at, I think, African culture, for example, and they really, I think, think that the so-called ancestors still yeah. are a force, you know, yeah. so I think that, you know, and I, I can't even speak for the, you know, Aboriginal. Yeah. They, they have a, they have a certain thing, like a certain type of time. It's called something time. I can't, it's well, not the, called and, something time. Uh, the dream time for the. Dream time. In Australia, yeah. I don't know about in Africa. I don't think they have the Dreamtime concept, but that's the Australian one. That's and, what I'm thinking of. Yeah, but I think so. I think that in many different cultures, currently there are some things that, and I'm not sure. I mean, the Chinese have a lot of respect on the ancestry, but I don't know if they think of them as still. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I, so. I don't think it's still alive. The other thing is, how do you how do you explain that the view that the Buddha knows the future and the past? You know, the Buddha is omniscient; he knows everything in the three times. I, are you asking how do you explain it from this school if, point of view, it, or from, from other from another point of view? If you don't like have this schools, you know, part part of what they're doing is also they're explaining that phenomena that this is why a Buddha know, can know that everything in the three times because the past exists substantially as the past and the future exists substantially as the future <laughs> it's bizarre okay but it's bizarre but it has a certain beauty to it so thus they posit the three times from the perspective of the action because the times are endowed with the four you know but it's like right off the bat you have this school of vibhashikas that have this wild view of time and uh you know and then chittamatra says nothing external is real you know they all have their weird like shifts it's like this is a big shift from like normal point of view this is a major shift. The three times are still present. It's, it's like, well, doesn't that get crowded? I mean, in some ways, don't you think there, there's sort of remnants of that or aspects of that that people do, even in our ordinary 
culture. In some ways, in some, some ways, ways, yeah. Old yeah. past as being sort of real or true. They may not think of it as. They do, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say if we if we put a certain amount of stock in that, it's like it it does make it exist in a certain way. Because yeah, because the uh, to continue here, because the times are endowed with the four characteristics of production and so forth, they do not assert that they are permanent. The present consciousness that observes the past and the future has an object. It is produced in dependence on the object and the sense faculty. The excuse me, the effect of a past deed on can ripen in the present and as at the time of the sprout's future and the sprout's past, the sprout exists. Their assertion that the three times substantially exist is different from that of, of the Vibhajyavada, one of the seven schools of the Sarvastivada, who make the distinction that the present and the past that has not produced an effect are substantially established and that the future and the past that has already produced an effect are not little nuance like well not all of it you know if it's already like spent or if it's already done what it's supposed to do then it no longer to take a pot as our favorite example with regard to how the pot exists at the time of its past and future and how the past and future of the pot are posited as a pot when someone begins to look at a pot because both the eye sense faculty and the continuum of the person that sees the pot and the pot this is its object are being produced they are the future At the time that the pot is being seen, both the eye sense faculty and the continuum of the person seeing the pot and the pot that is its object are the present. Having seen it as soon as the person has turned away, both the eye sense faculty and the continuum of the person seeing the pot and the pot that is its object are posited now as being in the past. Thus they assert that a pot exists at the time of the pot's pot past and the pot's future. And because the past pot and the future pot are respectively what has already been, has already existed as a pot and what will exist as a pot because they are similar in type to the present pot, they posit them as a pot. I think they're smoking pot. <laughs> uh, for example, although some wood in a forest has not been used for firewood because it is a type of wood that is used to make fire, it is called firewood. Uh, that's a weak, that's a weak example, but uh, reasoning. This is similar in type to milk that has already been milked from an udder. What is in the body of a milk cow is called milk, and they assert that it is like that. So what's the difference between milk and yogurt? Why not call it yogurt or, or butter? Because it's going to be in the future, right? A conventional truth is posited as that which after being destroyed, after its parts have been eliminated, the mind that apprehends it is destroyed and completely ceases to exist. So we've been through this before to some extent, right? Of what is an ultimate and a relative truth. And a relative truth is that which can be broken down either materially or uh, um, conceptually. For example, when the parts of a pot are destroyed by a hammer, the mind apprehending the pot is lost. 
which simply means that you no longer see a pot, so you're no longer apprehending a pot because it's no longer a pot. And when the qualities of the water inside the pot, such as its taste, are individually eliminated by the mind, the mind apprehending water is destroyed. That's a cool one. So when you divide water into its attributes of uh, wetness and taste and weight and color and so forth, there's nothing left but the attributes after the attributes. And so there's no ultimate entity of water. Cynthia. I, I'm just not clear that when we're talking about the, the mind apprehending the pot, um, being no longer possible. Are we talking about a uh, sensory perception of it, or are we talking about the mental perception of it, which seems like you could still the sensory. apprehend the pot. The so sensory. You're, you're only talking about essentially a sense consciousness apprehending the pot, yep. as opposed to the mind. So they're using in the term mind is a very broad use of the term mind mind, mind yeah, they're just being very they're just being very simple you know for material things it's the sense consciousnesses and right. then for non-material things it's the mind but presumably the mind consciousness could still construct any of these things in its in the sense of a I guess a more generally characterized phenomena. In a relative, conventionally asserted, conventional truth and imputed existent are synonyms. Mentally created phenomena, ultimate truths are posited as things like forms and partless particles for which the mind apprehending them is not lost when they are destroyed or when their parts have individually eliminated by the mind. <laughs> Which is really odd because the mind never perceives them. Uh, they assert that ultimate truth and substantial existent are synonyms. For them, you know, which, like between them and Madhyamakas is total 180, right? And they're all Buddhists. Uh, for them, any phenomena must be something whose entity is apprehended separately separate from the entity that's interesting they do not understand what it means to be merely imputed to the parts of another phenomena they do not understand what it means to be merely imputed to the parts of another phenomena referring to the way that chittamatra looks at phenomena as being uh, separate from the words the names of uh, impute that are used to impute upon them Therefore, they assert that all phenomena are substantially established. However, being substantially established does not make something substantially existent. Unfortunately, they don't explain what that nuance means. Uh, but presumably, <clears throat> so a few sentences before they said ultimate truth and is substantially existent or synonyms. So substantially established maybe includes conventional imputed existence. Um, that's an interesting one. In this system, that which bears its own entity is asserted to be the meaning of the term phenomena, dharma. Dharma is that which bears its own entity. 
of being this or that, that which makes something what it is. That which possesses or bears that which makes it what it is. It's sort of tautological. Because any phenomenon included in the two truths bears its own nature or its own entity. They're all phenomena. Regarding this, the treasury says because of its own entity. Somebody else says because it bears its own entity, it's a phenomena. That sounds similar. He's plagiarizing. If someone says that this is absurd because this is what they assert, there is no fault. According to us, because everything bears its own character, it does not pass beyond the nature of a phenomena. <laughs> In some way, it's being like absurdly simple. It's like everything is what it is. If someone, uh, let's see, according to us, blah, 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 regarding entity and the line, that which bears its own entity, there are two, the unshared entity and the shared entity. Although the, the shared and the unshared entity of something are two, they depend on different bases and do not contradict each other. That they are gathered in the manner of attributes on a single basis is also not contradictory. <clears throat> so shared is uh, aspects or characteristics that are shared with other phenomena and unshared is the unique to a particular entity, presumably. Okay, for example, the attribute of some of being momentary is an unshared entity from the perspective of the basis of impermanence. However, being momentary is a shared entity from the perspective of a basis of such things as pots and pillars. So they all share that same quality of being momentary. Um, and being momentary is unshared from the perspective of the basis of impermanence. That's not terribly clear. The attributes of solidity, moisture, heat, and motility which are the four elements are respectively the unshared or uncommon enti entities or qualities of earth, water, fire, wind, qualities of impermanence, emptiness, and so forth, are the shared qualities of the foundations, earth, water, and so forth, since all phenomena uh, have those qualities. Thus, the great exegesis says, according to others, there are two kinds of characteristics, specific and general. The characteristics of solidity, moisture, heat, and motility, the four elements, are specific characteristics. The characteristic of form is a general characteristic. Wow, that's weird characteristic of form as a general characteristic. I guess form comes in those four flavors of earth, water, fire, and air, and wind. Thus the two characteristics are not contradictory, although they are posited for a single phenomena. Each phenomena has some shared and some unshared. Therefore there's no fault. Clarifying the meaning says, Let's see if it actually clarifies the meaning, lives up to its title or not. <laughs> uh, mental engagement with specific characteristics is to bring into one's attention the specific characteristics. 
It is like thinking, for example, that such things as form have the characteristic of being able, capable, sorry, of being damaged. The expression, expression such things includes such things as saying that feeling has the characteristic of experience. Which are the definitions of the, um, the five skandhas, right? Form has the capability of being damaged, that which can be uh, obstructed or damaged feeling is that which has the characteristic of experience regarding mental application to general characteristics this refers to mental application to impermanence and so forth impermanence and so forth being qualities that apply to all phenomena or entities that bear their own mark. It is endowed with the 16 aspects of the four truths from a impermanence rather to release. Okay, a little convoluted way of explaining entities and shared and unshared, but it, they, you know, one of the things is that uh, the later schools clarify these things, clarify views of the earlier schools and, so that they make more sense. And the early schools present, uh, we'll see that in a lot of different areas where the earlier schools present ideas that are very difficult to understand because they're just not well defined and, and explained in the earlier schools. A general characteristic must be posited as a shared nature with other, with, uh, shared with various phenomena. Its opposite, a specific characteristic must be posited as an unshared nature. Investigating characteristics, aptly named text, says the specific characteristic of a substance is the unshared entity of blue and so forth. It is known by the eye consciousness and so forth. So the sense consciousnesses have as their object the um, specific characteristics. And the um, mental conceptual consciousness has as its object general characteristics. Also, the system holds that at the conclusion of analyzing such things as form and consciousness, they must be found. <laughs> at the conclusion of analyzing, you've you determined that they exist substantially in the end seeing that partless particles and partless moments of time must exist they accept partless particles as the basic components of course objects and partless moments as the basic components of a sequence of time because various course phenomena are established through the accumulation of subtle particles sorry subtle partless particles so they have so they have matter and time um, <clears throat> question though, when you, this says they must be found, yeah. but then the next sentence aren't isn't that really just saying that they're found through the assumption that they exist? Because they're not really finding the partless particles. Well, they didn't quite connect form and partless particles, you know. And if, finding, well, are, where are they finding consciousness? in the conglomeration of, of moments of time, just like they're finding form in the conglomeration of partless particles. So this notion of found is, uh, it, is it really just a sort of a conceptual finding? No. You know, I, I, I think it's a direct. Yeah. 
I think found is is used to describe their rationality, their thought process, their um, uh, their rationale for something establishes it as real. I don't think any you know notion of a scientific finding it's a philosophical finding it's an art yeah i think that's what i was trying to say is that what they mean by found here is more of a conceptual proving. construct yeah proving what we think of as found right agreed yeah it's not totally clear but i agree with you guys that, that must be the sense that they're using it in which is, I mean, the only reason I find it weird is because obviously when you get into the, you know, practices where you investigate mind and other things and try to find it and the not finding is the answer, you know, I mean, often. And so this really turns, you know, this makes that makes it a little weird that they're acting as if you can find things that are unfindable. So it, it's just odd that that they're I mean, it's just extremely different from other uses of that term. Well, you just flip between two different diametrically opposed systems. In yeah. Madhyamaka, you don't find things, so it's a 180-degree turn. Right. But, here, but here you find things. Here you find form because you've defined it as that which can be damaged. And we all know that, you know how, how, how much that happens with form. Right, but still, you're defining it. You're, I'm sorry, you're finding it through definitions, as what Kevin was saying. I think that's right. Yeah, you define it in a certain way, and then you, because you experience something, and then therefore you found it, find it. It's conceptually delineated. I don't know. It, it's sort of sim simple, you know, and at the same time, trying to explain things that are simple often turns out to be very complicated. I guess. Anyway, to go through this is going to take way longer than I ever anticipated. So I guess uh, we'll just, I'll just try to be patient and enjoy the finding of that realization. Uh, let's see. Because various coarse phenomena are established through the accumulation of subtle partless particles, they assert that external objects are truly established. Um, because there is no difference between earth and the earth element, water and the water element. So when they say earth and the earth element, um, I think they mean like earth as the conglomeration of subtle partless particles of the earth element. It's what we've seen in other places. And they repeat that for the four elements. And because the functions of all four elements are fully present in all composite forms, they assert that the actual four elements are present in all composite forms. Which is an interesting view that they have that things like water include the other elements of earth and fire and wind and, and so forth. Fire includes water, <laughs> just very little amounts of water. The Vibhashika divide action into motivating and motivated action. 
which is a helpful division. Motivating action is a, a motivation associated with the mental consciousness. And is the motivation, it is the, is the motivations that are the mental factors that produce physical and verbal actions. It is also called mental action. Motivated action is the physical action and the verbal action produced by that motivating action. So the, the uh, motivating action of the mind results in motivated action of body and speech. Both physical and verbal actions have both revelatory, and they use the term vijnyapti as uh, revelatory vijnyapti is a sort of uh, that which can be um, experienced, I guess, and non-revelatory forms. Satratika do not assert that action has form. Vaibhashika and Prasangika Madhyamaka assert that physical and verbal action have form. This is another bizarre feature, and particularly that the Prasangika's view includes this idea that physical and verbal action have form. I think we're going to get to uh, gradually understanding what they mean by that, but let's just leave leave it at that for now, and uh, we'll, it, it'll be filled in over a long period of time. Sorry, although a long period of time may elapse between an action and its effect, the specific effects of happiness resulting from virtue and of suffering resulting from non-virtue do not become confused because the action has a specific form that persists through time and creates the specific result according or, or causes. According to some Vaibhashika, once an action has performed, as long as its effect is not ripened, there is an entity of non-compositional factors called non-wasted. This idea that karma doesn't waste, it doesn't deteriorate, it doesn't disappear, it will always ripen, it will, it will continue until it ripens, it doesn't just go away. This is a, a cruel accounting, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. According to some, what's an action? I said that, sorry. It becomes a different entity from the action, because it's not the action. The action is in the past. <laughs> and in the present, there's the past of the action. But let's skip that for now. And it connects the action and the effect See if, if there's if there's action and effect that are separated by time, how do you possibly explain that? And that's one of the fundamental premises of the Buddhist tradition is, is that the Buddha said, you know, because you did so and so ten lifetimes ago, therefore in this lifetime you look like you have a funny face or whatever. Right? So how do those the impacts of a faction of actions uh, persist over time and cause effects at a later time. How do we possibly explain that? So they explained it by uh, this idea that action has form. Uh, it becomes a different entity from the action that connects the action effect. For example, if someone has a, cert has a certificate of a loan, <laughs> that loan together with its interest is not wasted. 
because it is like this, they say that there is no fault. A division of Ibashika asserts that through what is called the acquisition or property of virtuous and non-virtuous actions, a non-associated compositional factor that is a different entity than those two actions connects the action and the effect. Struggling to come up with explanations for how effects can occur from actions that are separated by periods of time. Somehow there's a non-wastage and there's some sort of like acquisition. And who acquires? What acquires the, uh, the uh, acquisition? If there's no self, where does that acquiring happen? Adhere, what does it adhere to? And so that's the person, the inexpressible person is uh, what accumulates the accumulated or the acquired momentum and we're already over time so we're not even going to make it through the end of this section regarding how they identify the self that is the basis of actions and effects some members of the samatiya school of the vibhashikas assert that it is the aggregates that do this that uh Uh, some other school assert that it's all five aggregates. Another school asserts that it's the mind alone. And another school asserts that it's the inexpressible self, the Vatsiputriyas. The Kashmirians and some others assert that the continuum of the aggregates is the referent of the self. So when they say referent of the self, they mean that the, the self is a word that refers to some entity and the entity that the word self refers to is the continuum of the aggregates and it's the is the reference of the self that serves as the basis of actions and effects so the continuum of the of the skandhas is what uh, um, collects that which is acquired those who assert that all five aggregates are the referent of the person do not say that each of the five aggregates is the person. They assert that the collection is the person. Those who assert the consciousness is the referent of the person posit as the person, the mental consciousness. That is the accumulator of actions and the experience or effects and that travels without interruption in all past and future lifetimes. Most of us would probably say that it's the mind that accumulates the karma and which holds the karma somewhere, probably in like the left side of the mind. Mind. Maybe for some people it's a little bit lower down or maybe higher up, but somewhere in the mind is where we accumulate the impact of actions not yet uh, ripened. In the Vaibhashika system, they assert that whatever is an established base is necessarily a self of phenomena. So they assert that phenomena have a self. They not only don't like talk about the selflessness of phenomena, but they actually talk about the self of phenomena, that they're established basis because all phenomena have ultimate existence, not the self. The self is not an established base or a real phenomena. Uh, the self of the person, that is. Therefore, they do not accept the coarse and subtle selflessness of phenomena. They posit the person being empty of being permanent partless and independent to be the coarse selflessness of persons 
So this is the beginning stage of understanding selflessness is the outer version is that the person is empty of being permanent, partless and independent. And the person being empty of being a self-sufficient and substantially existent to be the subtle selflessness of a person. Self-sufficient, uh, meaning that it uh, exists independent of other entities and substantially existent, meaning that it has its own, it bears its own entity. And it's empty of those two aspects. They assert that subtle and selflessness and subtle selflessness of persons are synonymous. And maybe just a little bit more to finish this, Savasi Patriya assert a self that is self-sufficient, substantially existent. Strangely, therefore they do not assert that being empty of that is the subtle selfness of the self or something other than the aggregates, there would be the fault that it would be permanent as in the Tirtika system, and there would be the fault that the self would be something that would could be conceived of separately without conceiving of the five aggregates. If the self were something other than the aggregates, so there's the ones that talk about the inexpressible self. It, if one asserts that the self is the aggregates, it would absurdly follow that there would be many people, persons, because <laughs> the aggregates are many. It would also absurdly follow that when the aggregates disintegrated, the self would disintegrate such that like the aggregates at the time of death, the continuum would cease. So the struggle to understand what is the selflessness, the key, one of the key axioms of Buddhism. Uh, therefore, they assert a self-sufficient person that cannot be described inexpressible as either permanent or permanent. Thus, in their system, subtle selflessness is just the selflessness of being empty, of being permanent, partless, and independent. It's the same as the coarse selflessness. They don't have a, se a subtle selflessness of being self uh, being sufficient, self-sufficient, and substantially existent. Turning to the topic of valid means of knowledge, there are two, direct perception inference. There are three types of direct perception, sense, mental, and yogic. They do not assert reflexive awareness, direct perception. They assert that the physical sense faculties are valid means of knowledge and that when a sense consciousness apprehends an object, its object, it apprehends it nakedly without the in the uh, intermediary of the aspect of the object appearing in the sense faculty. They distinguish between seeing and knowing, saying that the eye sense faculty sees form and the eye consciousness apprehends or knows form. There are many such assertions. The general explanation presented above of what Vaibhashika asserts for the most part belongs to the system of the Kashmirians and the essence of their assertions is summarized in the compendiums. Space and the two cessations are the non-compounded. The three unconditioned are permanent. The condition completely lacks self. They have no creator and momentary awareness produced from the eye and it's without aspect. What is directly perceived are collections of particles This explained in the texts of the Kashmirians that are called the intelligent people. Then there's Jaitari's verse, the three unconditioned are permanent space and the two cessation of all conditioned phenomena momentary. There's no self, no creator. Regarding consciousness and awareness produced by sense faculty directly perceives aggregations of subtle particles. Scholars explain that this is the system of the Kashmirian Vaibhashikas. So that concludes us going overtime. Thank you for bearing with us. 
and we made it all of uh, 29 to 49, 20 pages. This is a huge chapter. Did I really put it all in one class? What a stupid person I am. Wow. Highly unrealistic. You call it optimistic. <laughs> Optimistical. Wow, I really did put it in one class. No, I split it. I split it. Oh, my God. 2229 to 63 still. Okay, well, we'll just take it as it comes and readjust the the agenda and if we go into the next year so be it so i hope that's okay with people money back guarantee if you if you're unhappy a full refund plus penalties and interest mary beth sorry but i just i had a question about this um on page 245 where it says when you destroy the pot with the hammer the mind apprehending the pot is lost and then it says that when you individually or when the qualities are eliminated by the mind then the mind is destroyed and it i mean are we supposed to sort of like does that mean that or are they talking about like individual moments of mind that like it it's, it's yeah really they're they're strangely usually we we uh it, it seems to me that um you know there's two things there's partless particles and then there's partless moments of time and both of these relate to part partless particles, I believe, because the water inside the pot is made of partless particles. Okay. Because it's matter, right? So both are relating to uh, matter. And um, the, the, the water inside the pot is uh, um, viewed by... Yeah, that's a tough one. So the, the easier one is the mind apprehending the pot is lost. So that's a visual sense consciousness. And the visual sense consciousness that apprehended the pot no longer exists in the present. <laughs> it makes me think that they're saying that it's the stuff outside of us that we're apprehending that's actually making our mind. Like the Chittimatrans say, everything out there is your mind. But this seems like almost like everything out there is not your mind. Your mind is everything out there. And when when I that thing is so. gone, then that I don't think so. I think mind. they're I think they're contrasting two types of objects. They're contrasting a specifically characterized object of the 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 pot as the as the object of visual consciousness and then water as the idea of there being water in the in the vase and when you uh, take apart that generally characterized idea that has we when we think of water we think of its wetness its taste its its reflective quality its weight um, it not being frozen or uh, gas 
And when you separate all those different aspects from each other, then uh, conceptually, there's nothing left. So the first example is you break a physical pot, and that being the object of your visual consciousness is no longer there. So that visual consciousness is gone. And when you when you conceptually take apart the qualities of water, there's no entity of water that's left. And so the mind that's thinking about water can cannot find any entity other than the qualities. Thank you. That's helpful, kind of. Yeah, kind of. I mean, that's like, how we're supposed to think about the skandhas and what we think is the self, too. Actually. Yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> Which they don't. They don't then apply that same reasoning. Strangely, um, but they're they're madly trying to solve like how karma works with with the self. But in terms of what what Mary Beth was asking, though, isn't this this is the realm where in any moment of consciousness is essentially the object and the mind meeting, so to speak, right? And so, if the object is no longer there to meet, then that mind that moment of consciousness would be gone, right? I mean, right. Just in a very simple sense. Right. So, in one case the object of that moment of consciousness is broken apart by physical activity of a hammer smashing it. And in the other context, that mind that's thinking water is mentally dissecting the water. And, you know, so it's like a general idea of water and then coming up with, well, I, I, I don't know what, you know, it, I don't know what water would be other than those qualities. I, I don't know. So that's I, the analytic honest, scenario that you're talking yeah, about. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah, and sure. honestly, I've seen the description of the hammer breaking the pot and, and then no longer producing the mind, apprehending the pot a million times. I've never seen this one of the qualities of water. So... I, um, you know, I'm sort of trying to explain it as best I could, but I've never seen it before, so I'm not quite sure. Uh, you know, normally you see these things used over and over, and you get a feeling by the way it's used in different sources for what they mean, but I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, we're over time, and uh, and um, after the uh, named lists of schools and texts, uh, we actually have some really interesting uh, ideas that I think we should spend a lot more time on, actually, of like uh, <clears throat> this, the three times, this bizarre idea of phenomena existing in the three times. What does it mean that phenomena bear their own mark? And how does cause and effect work, particularly when cause and effect are separated by time? And, and how does karma work if there is no self? So just some simple problems. You know, so like in terms of like compiling our uh, our own tenant systems of like, you know, how do you explain these five things? And, and maybe I'll try to list them or we can all like list what are those things of, um, you know, how do the, what's the relationship of the present to the past and the future? And what is it, how do we define a phenomena? How do we define a thing? 
how do we differentiate between real things and unreal things and how do we explain um uh, how do we explain the activity of karma in the moment how do we explain the activity of karma that doesn't ripen in the moment you know karma that acts immediately versus karma that doesn't act immediately and how do we explain <clears throat> uh, the absence of self or the self and we should refine the the phrasing of those and like figure out like the, this text they just provided like their version of answers to some questions and they didn't really pose the questions it would be neat if we as a group could like come up with what were the questions that they just answered if that makes any sense and then and then like the, those same questions then will be repeated by many different schools struggling to to answer them in different ways coming up with different answers for some reason anyway why don't we uh, conclude and uh, dedicate the merit by this merit may all obtain omniscience may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth old age sickness and death from the ocean of samsara may i free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east may the lotus garden of the rigdon's wisdom bloom may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled may all beings enjoy profound brilliant glory thank you have a great evening and uh if you haven't started already you better start now figuring out what you're going to be for halloween <laughs> all right good night <laughs> good night